Over the next couple weeks, we're going to be examining David's fall. And it is a, an incredible fall, isn't it? He's been raised up by God. He's slain a giant. He's brought back the Ark of the Covenant. But today, we see an all-too-human side of David. People always say, if you're going to do something, do it right. Well, I guess if you're going to sin and you're really going to sin, we get a picture of what that looks like in today's Old Testament lesson with David. Here he is, king of Israel. He has everything he could ever possibly want. And yet in one moment's time, he looks out, and within the next, I don't know, several hours, he destroys what God has given to him, and he shipwrecks his faith. Paul talks about this some. He talks about what it means to go from having received God to receive the truth of God, to have received the Holy Spirit, and then to turn away from it and to decide that you want something other than God. And that really is David's sin today. We tend to think of sin as being merely about disobeying a number of statutes or commandments, but really all sin is is deciding that you want something more than God. And it's then exhibited by behavior. But I don't think it's necessarily correct to say that David fell. Because today's lesson gives us little glimpses that it wasn't a fall as much as it was a slow decline. There are a number of characteristics that David exhibits in today's lesson that I think we need to be careful of in our own lives lest we be taken over by sin as David is. And we're going to go through those characteristics. And we're going to go through it by slowly going through the lesson that is given to us today. The first thing that we note about David is that he abdicates his responsibility. As king, he has certain responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities is when his troops go out to war... You go out to war with them. And when the season for fighting comes, you go out with them. Today's scripture lesson reads, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Israelites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Have you ever worked for somebody who wants you to do something that you know they're not willing to do themselves. I'm sure most of us have had experiences like that. Now, it can be sometimes that they can't do it because of the position of authority that they're in. And we can understand that. But there's a difference in someone, I think, who is willing but isn't supposed to because of the responsibility that they have. Maybe they're, you know, I I can think of commanders weren't supposed to busy themselves when I was in the military, with the work of an A1C, because they had to do other things in order to make the organization run well. But that's not the picture we're getting here with David. What we're getting here with David is that he's sending other people out to do the work that he should be involved in. He's more than willing to let his army leave Jerusalem, go into battle, to overcome enemies, but he's not willing to enter into the battle himself. So what do we really see here? We see him abdicating responsibility, not taking the responsibility that God has given him as the king of Israel to go out and be a leader for his people. That's the first thing. 
The second thing, though, is connected to the first thing. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Late one afternoon when David rose from his couch. Idle hands are the devil's playground. How many of you grew up with that? So not only has David sent his troops to go into battle, David's just kind of lounging, enjoying his authority. It's good to be king. I don't have to do the fighting. I can get up, do what I want, pretty much when I want it. I think David falls into a trap that a lot of us fall into. That trap is we confuse leisure with being idle. Our leisure was never designed to be something where we do nothing. But sometimes that's kind of the view that we get. You know, leisure is laying on a beach, and there's nothing wrong with laying on a beach. Or leisure is just doing nothing. Or leisure is just filling our mind with whatever the people on TV want to fill our mind with. But leisure in a godly context never has idleness, because idleness is always a danger for us. We're going to fill our time with something. And if we're not deliberate about the things we're going to fill our time with, there will be something that comes, inserts itself, and fills it for us. So what is that something for David? Sitting on his couch, living the good life, gets up, no direction, no real desire to to force himself into any particular way of living. He's just sort of doing his thing. There's nothing intentional. Maybe that's a way of saying it. David's not living his life intentionally here. He's just sort of letting life happen to him. So he stands up. And then he's faced with a choice. He sees Bathsheba. Now at this point, I think most people can relate to the difficulty that David has. He sees this beautiful woman. doesn't have to be a woman. For a woman, it can be a man. He sees this beautiful woman. And he thinks to himself, boy, I want that. And make no distinction. To David, Bathsheba's just a that. Because at this point, he's no longer thinking of her as a human being. He's thinking of her as something that is designed purely to satiate his sexual lusts. And I think a lot of us can probably identify with that. I think a lot of us have probably been there. Where instead of seeing the individual as a good creation of God, and loving that individual, and trying to see that individual in the way that God sees that individual, we design them, we begin to see them, as tools, as things that are there to satiate our lusts. And it doesn't have to be just sexual. It can be financial. It can be taking advantage of the good graces of other people and using them. It can be any number of scenarios. But David's first mistake is that he is given two choices and he picks the wrong one. One, he can avert his gaze and he can pray And he can ask God to redeem his vision for this human being. Or two, he can act on his baser instinct and decide that he's going to make her an object for his sexual gratification. 
he chooses poorly. And there's a lesson in there for us. Yes, a sexual lesson. Perhaps for some people, primarily a sexual lesson. But it's not just sexual. Whenever we are placed in a scenario where we are tempted to see a person as less than a creation of God, as beholding the image of God, and we are tempted to use that individual for what we want, we have just seen that person as less than God sees them. We're not loving that person. We're using that person. And that's what David does here. He makes the poor choice, but the really poor choice, it is the choice, but the choice to actually sleep with Bathsheba is just the consequence of the way that he sees Bathsheba. He doesn't see her as being created in the image of God. His spiritual spiritual laxity, his laxity in the things that he's supposed to be doing as king are overwhelmed by his desire to, I want that. And so that's what he goes and gets. He makes a poor choice. And he gives himself over to his lust. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. And there's another lesson in there, isn't it? When we're in a position of authority, no matter who the authority is over, whether it's children, whether we have jobs where we're in positions of authority, they look to us for leadership. And we are to be shepherds as leaders at all times, and it doesn't matter what our leadership is over. Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite look to David for protection and for leadership. And think of it from Bathsheba's perspective for a second. We don't really get her voice in this, do we? She's just called on by some servants of David and said, hey, king likes you and he wants to do his thing with you. What's she going to do? What's she going to do? Well, she could say no. Maybe she's beheaded. Maybe she's killed. You don't really know. David takes advantage of the authority that he has and he lords it over her rather than being a benevolent king rather than being a king who has the best interests of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite at heart. And there is a lesson in that for us. When we are in authority, no matter what that authority is, we have to exercise it with prudence. And we should always be looking out for the best for other people, rather than using other people in order to advance our end. David's end was sex. Our end can be any number of things, whether it's popularity, whether it's the acknowledgement of a job well done from another boss, whatever it is. We have a responsibility to take care of those that we are in authority over. And then David's next fall, deceit. So he receives the call from Bathsheba. I'm with child. I'm pregnant. And what's his response? What have I done? My goodness, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to take care of this and make it right. No. Get Uriah the Hittite, her husband, from the front lines. Bring him here. And I'm going to try to mask over what I've done here by having him sleep with her. And then hopefully, 
nobody will figure out what's happened here. So Uriah the Hittite comes. But now we're faced with a distinction, aren't we? Uriah the Hittite is an honorable man. Uriah the Hittite won't go and see his wife while his friends are out in battle doing the work that David should be doing with them. So Uriah the Hittite refuses to go and lay with his wife. He refuses to abdicate his responsibility. Not just his legal responsibility, but his moral responsibility, or at least as he perceives it to be. So David's left with now, kill him. Kill him. And that's it. Uriah the Hittite's dead. Sends a note to Joab. Send him to the front lines into the heat of battle. And when they're right in the middle of the battle, pull back and let him be slain. Sometimes I think we mythologize our Bible heroes. David's not a hero. Not in this story. He did some great things. He slew the giant, slayed the giant, slew, slay, that's one of like those moose, meeses, <laughs> what's the plural, I don't know. He slayed the giant. He restored the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. And we do find that the scriptures say David is a man after God's own heart. Even after this, David will be restored. But this is just what it is. David slept with a woman that wasn't his wife. He impregnated her, and then he had her husband killed. And that's it. It's a story of deceitfulness. It's a story of betrayal. It's really kind of a sickening story. Now, David is redeemed. And we're going to talk about that next week. That's my cliffhanger for the week. But David is redeemed. He is restored. And I think if most of us are truthful, we kind of wonder, well, how can you be restored from something like that? And those are tough questions. We'll deal with them next week. But he goes from deceitfulness to murder. And now we have to ask ourselves, where do we stand in this story? And that's the tough question to answer. I don't think most of us, most of us, it it happens. And I want to be very clear, there is redemption when this happens. David is not necessarily fallen forever and for good and can never be redeemed for the sin that he's committed. Nobody's beyond that. If anybody's beyond that, we're all beyond that. But what do we do with the story now as far as we relate to it? Well, I think there's a very important lesson in the life of David today. David didn't fall. David just kind of meandered into sin. David was not intentional about his faith. We read about it early in the story. He didn't go to battle. He wasn't doing the things that he was supposed to be doing. He abdicated his responsibility. He was idle. He was just kind of sitting around the palace and, you know, whatever happened, happened. And we have to be very careful in our faith that we don't just sort of meander along and let our faith happen to us. Because we can eventually be shipwrecked just as David is shipwrecked here. His faith is dead, gone. There's nothing there. David has fallen as far as a person can fall. And we can look at that and ask ourselves, how in the world can David do this? Well, it's because David was a human being. And David could stop praying. David could stop reading scripture. 
David could stop worshiping in the temple. David could stop taking over or uh, participating in the feasts and the festivals of the church. David could stop doing any number of the same things that we can stop doing. And then one day you wake up and you look at it and, whoa, boy, am I a long way away from God. My goodness, my heart is way away from God. My thoughts are consumed with things that I don't want them to be consumed with. My language has changed. The way I talk to people has changed. The way I live my life has changed. We may not commit adultery. We may not end up murdering the spouse of the person that we've committed adultery with. But we have to ask ourselves an important question here. Have we fallen in love and has since committed adultery on God? Have we fallen away from God and taken on another love, another spouse, sought comfort in something other than what he's given us in Jesus Christ? As soon as we do that, disobedience isn't far away. Because God becomes about something rather than internal. God becomes that thing off to the side rather than the thing that is living, the life, the spirit living in me. David had no life of God in him at this point in the story. David is spiritually gone. And it is so easy for us to get to that point when we stop seeing God, stop seeking God in our daily lives. I want to ask you this morning, are you seeking God intentionally? Are you just letting faith happen to you? where you know some things about God. You've heard it in the past. You've got some knowledge about God, but that's kind of where it stays. That's not what we're called to be as Christians. As Christians, we're called to seek God, to live by the spirit that has been given to us in our baptisms and by faith. That doesn't take a break. We don't take vacations from that because the consequences are what we see today. The world starts telling us what's okay instead of taking our cues from what God has given to us in Scripture. What he tells us through the work of the Spirit. And that is the great gift of our faith. The Spirit lives within us. But you can squelch the Spirit. And the way that we squelch it is we no longer intentionally live our faith. We don't seek God. And eventually we just stop loving the ways of God altogether. And we turn into David's. Are you a David this morning? Do you have the heart of David in this story this morning? I hope not. I hope that you're intentionally seeking God. And I hope that you see the importance of it. I really believe that when we stand before God, we're going to be amazed at how wide a gulf there is in his holiness and our lack of holiness. I don't even think it's gonna, there are going to be words. I think we're probably just going to fall on our knees and be, oh my goodness, wow. Do you have that wow in your life right now? Do you have that? 
It's that wow that protects from this. It's that amazing recognition of God in your life. That sense of the Spirit working in your life that protects from this. And where do we go to get that? I know I say this all the time. I'm probably like a broken record player that just keeps skipping over and over again. But it's so important. Where do we go to get that? We go where God has given it. We go to the cross. We go to a life that is lived. God coming to earth, taking on human flesh, living perfectly on earth, dying for our sin and rising again. How do we get that? How do we get that in here rather than just in here? We get it from the scriptures. We got it in our baptisms when God delivered to us the power of the Holy Spirit. We get it in the fellowship of believers when we have like-minded individuals who are on their way to knowing God better. We get it in the Lord's Supper when we come before the throne of God and he gives to us his body and blood. That's where we get it. And I think sometimes we try so hard to be spiritual and we complicate it that we forget it's very simple. But the simplicity is a discipline. And that's what's hard. It's tough to read the Bible when you feel like you're not really getting it. It's tough to pray when you feel like your prayers are bouncing off a wall. It's tough to go to church when maybe you're tired or maybe when somebody's made you mad. It's tough to receive the Lord's Supper, to realize what God is giving us in that when you feel unworthy. And yet God says, do it anyway. Do it anyway. Develop that spirit of intentional faith so that you don't become shipwrecked, so that your faith isn't overturned, destroyed. And all of a sudden those thoughts and those ways of living become entirely detached from the ways of God. So where are you this morning? Where's your heart this morning? I want to encourage you that if you are at the point of David this morning, there is redemption. There is hope. The ship can be mended, fixed, turned around, put back out at sea. But first, we have to make a decision. Do I truly want a life of faith in God? Or do I prefer the shipwreck? So that's what I leave you with this week. Think about that. And when we come back next week, we'll see what it means to turn the ship around. Let's pray.